Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 60. Last week, I covered the people and places found in Genesis, Chapters 32 and 33. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm doing the same, picking up in the middle of Genesis, Chapter 33, and continuing through the beginning of Chapter 35. So let's get started. For the sake of time last week, I skipped a place known as Peniel, so I'll start with that town. In chapter 32, verse 30, Jacob named the place because, quoting the New Revised Standard Version, I have seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved. End quote. From this passage, it has been deduced that the meaning of the name Peniel is literally translated to the face of God. In the Old Testament, Peniel is said to be at a location that is not far from Succoth. I'll get to Succoth in a minute. It is further explained that Peniel is to the east of the Jordan River and south of the river Jabbok. As you probably could have guessed, these coordinates help to narrow the location to a specific area. It was also at this location that Jacob wrestled all night with God's messenger, and where God changed his name to Israel... Well, at least the first time. I don't think I've mentioned it before, but the word Israel translates to he who struggles with God. And that's far too much foreshadowing to go unnoticed. After those eventful twelve or so hours, and as seen in Judges chapter 8 and 1 Kings chapter 12, a village was established at the location. Then, in Judges chapter 8, We have a small sidebar about Gideon when he was chasing the Midianites. Along his journey, he stopped in the town and asked for food to nourish his 300 troops. The people of the town refused. Gideon later returned to the town, destroyed its tower, and killed all the men of the city. That is certainly one way to deliver a message. Later, after the United Monarchy of Israel... When the northern kingdom seceded, probably around 930 BC, the northern kingdom's first king, Jeroboam, set the seat of his government at Sesham. A short time later, he fortified Peniel. Not too long after that, he moved the capital to the newly fortified city. From there, he and his son Nadab governed. This lasted for a couple of decades. Well, most of it was under Jeroboam, as 1 Kings lists Nadab's reign as only two years. Then, Basha seized the throne in about 909 BC and moved the capital to Tirzah, as seen in 1 Kings chapter 15. There'll be more on this cast of characters and Tirzah when I get to that portion of the Old Testament. Finally, Benil was apparently a relatively common man's name in Assyria, But who could know which came first, the place name or the person's name? Or it could be completely unrelated, and Assyrians were just naming their boys with a word that had the same translated meaning. Other than that, there really isn't much known in the extra-biblical historical record concerning Peniel. In Genesis chapter 33, Jacob and Esau meet again and reconcile their differences. Esau receives a gift from Jacob. After this encounter, Jacob settles in Canaan, specifically at a place called Succoth, where he builds an altar. 
So, in chapter 33 is a place called Succoth. The name Succoth appears in several spots in the Old Testament. The first mention is in this chapter as the place where Jacob, when he returns from Paddan Aram, after meeting with Esau, builds a house for his family, and apparently a barn, or some similar shelter for his livestock, which at this time included cattle. There is a mention of the place in Exodus chapter 12. After the 600,000 Israelites departed Egypt, specifically from a city called Ramses, they stopped in Succoth. It's a bit unclear if this is the same town as in Genesis, or two towns that shared a name. And, the one in Exodus is thought to have been on the African continent, in what is today northern Egypt, on the east side of the Nile Delta. This would put it in the area known at the time as the land of Goshen. I'll cover that area more when I get to Exodus. If the name is for two different towns, the other one may have been a town to the east of the Jordan River. This village is mentioned in Joshua chapter 13, and this passage seems to indicate that it was in the region of the Levant, near the Jordan and Jabbok. This is a location usually identified with an archaeological site known as Tel Deir Allah. This specific tell is on a plateau about one mile or just under two kilometers to the north of the Jabbok River. The location also appears in Judges chapter 8, and this is the same passage where the men of Peniel were slaughtered. It seems that the leaders of Succoth also did not provide food for Gideon's men, but their fate was different. According to the New Revised Standard Version, Gideon took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he trampled the people of Succoth. For clarity, the footnotes of the version say that the meaning of the word trample may alternatively be the word taught, as in to teach. Either way, it doesn't sound exceedingly pleasant. Not to forget, in 1 Samuel, the town is mentioned as the place where the Philistines positioned their armies prior to fighting King Saul and the Israelites. It was just outside of the town where David impressed a stone in Goliath's forehead. Finally, the town played a role in the Bronze Age of Israel as a place where, in the New Revised Standard Version, the pots, the shovels, and the basins, all these vessels that Haram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord, were burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarethan, and, like Peniel, there isn't really much in the outside historic record for the city. Moving along. In Genesis chapter 34, Sheshem, a Hivite, raped Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah. Then, the Hivites attempted to arrange marriages with Jacob's family. Several of Jacob's sons avenged the wrong done on their sister by slaughtering all of the men in the city. Jacob then chastised his sons for not thinking through the strategic implications of their vengeance. Hamor the Hivite first appears in Genesis chapter 33, but in this passage there was no ethnic identification attached to his name. The term Hivite made its appearance in chapter 34. In the table of nations, the Hivites descended from Canaan, making them the grandchildren of the son of Ham and therefore the great-grandchildren of Noah. And, quite obviously, this reference also places them geographically in the land of Canaan, 
in the Levant. The outside historic record is far less conclusive on who they actually were. In fact, no reference to these people has been conclusively identified in neither the Egyptian nor the Mesopotamian tablets or steles. A few researchers have suggested that the name Hivite is related to the old Hebrew word Hawa, which loosely translates in English to the phrase tent dweller or maybe tent encampment. Other researchers, as other researchers often do, do not support the claim. Back in the Old Testament, specifically in the books of Judges and Joshua, the Hivites lived in the hill country of what is today Lebanon, ranging broadly from Lebo Hamath in the north to Mount Hermon in the south. Mount Hermon is smack dab on the border with Syria, Lebanon, and Israel today. A quick sidebar on the interesting story of Mount Hermon. This mountain isn't really a single mountain, but a small cluster of mountains on the southern side of what is known as the Anti-Lebanon Mountain Range. This range runs about 93 miles, or 150 kilometers. The highest peak of Mount Hermon is just over 9,200 feet, or 2,800 meters above sea level, and as such is the highest point in Syria. On its southern side, which is in Israeli territory, it is the highest point in Israel. In fact, as far as I could figure out, it's the highest point in the Levant. The next highest and closest mountains are in Turkey and Iran. Keep that in mind. But the reason for the sidebar is not its geography, but instead the roles it has played throughout history. First, it was found in the Epic of Gilgamesh. In this mythology, legend has it that Mount Hermon split after Gilgamesh killed Humbaba, who was the guardian of the cedar forest. To quote, The ground split open with the heels of their feet. As they whirled around in circles, Mount Hermon and Lebanon split. Next there is the Book of Enoch, which is an ancient Jewish tome allegedly written by Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah. In this text, Mount Hermon is the place where the watcher class of fallen angels descended to earth. It was here that they swore they would take wives among the daughters of men. Some theorize that these creatures were one and the same as the Nephilim of Genesis 6. In fact, there are ruins on the slopes that are believed to be connected to this story. More specifically, there is a sacred temple made of carved stone on the summit of Mount Hermon. It is generally known as Kasar Antar and was first documented in 1869 by General Sir Charles Warren, a British royal engineer. General Sir Warren brought back a stele from the site that was inscribed with the phrase that translates to, according to the command of the greatest and holy God, those who take an oath proceed from here, end quote. This inscription was interpreted as being connected to the oath taken by the angels under Shumjaza to be bound by a curse in order to take wives as found in the book of Enoch. In Ugaritic text, the summit is referred to as Saphon and is the palace of Baal, which in some cases was their supreme deity. First Chronicles mentions Mount Hermon as a place where Ephor, Ishi, Elul, Azrael, Jeremiah, Hodaviah, and Jadil were the heads of their families, specifically as related to the half-tribe of Manasseh. 
Richard France, who was a British theologian, even regarded Mount Hermon as a possible location for the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, for the record, he seems to have been alone in this thought. Of course, such a prominent geographic feature had numerous other mentions in the Old Testament, and even had a people, the Hermonites, named for it. Then, there is one widely disputed theory, that the Mount Sinai of Exodus is actually Mount Hermon. Other than that quick mention, I'll leave that theory alone. And back out of the rabbit hole, and returning to the Hivites. The Hivites were also featured in the Masoretic text of Joshua chapter 9, when their towns were listed as Gibeon, Kephariah, Beroth, and Karathi, Jeremim. But this list isn't without some disagreement, as the Septuagint lists these four towns as inhabited by the Horites, which means one of the texts may have had a spelling or other error leading to the confusion. The Masoretic text, a few chapters later, specifically in Joshua chapter 11, described the Hivites as being under Hermon in the land of Mizpah, and the Hermon in this case was Mount Hermon. Once again, the Septuagint is different, this time listing this area as being inhabited by the Hittites, not the Hivites. A similar difference can be found in 2 Samuel, with the Hivites and Hittites being confused. And that's a spelling and grammar lesson for you kids. Keep it correct, as one era can echo for millennia. Fairly consistently throughout the Old Testament, the Hivites are among the many different groups living in Canaan. Then, in Genesis chapter 36, in the Masoretic text, reads that one of Esau's wives, Oalibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zeban the Hivite, she is further described as of the daughters of Canaan. But again, in the Septuagint, it reads that Zebon was originally referred to as a Horite, not a Hivite. Then, the book of Joshua, in chapter 3, lists the Hivites as one of the seven groups living in the land of Canaan when the Israelites began their takeover of the territory. In doing so, seven specific nations were to be exterminated, namely the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And in this, much to the dismay of the Hivites, the Septuagint did not differ. Then, six chapters later, in Joshua 9, Joshua himself ordered the Hivites, this time listed as being from Gibeon. Anyway, Joshua commanded the Hivites, among others, to be wood gatherers and water carriers for the temple of Yahweh. But hey, at least they weren't to be exterminated. More on extermination in a minute. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, it seemed that King David's census included the Hivite cities. Finally, in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, and during the reign of Solomon, they are described as being slave laborers for his many building projects. And this was their last mention in the Bible. And with little to go on in the historic record, they disappeared. Of course, I should probably cover Hamor the man, too. And this will be quick, since not much is really known about him. As a reminder, Hamor was the father of Seshem, as seen in Genesis chapter 33. It was from Seshem that Jacob bought the land when he returned from Paddan Aram. The asking price was either 100 pieces of silver, kishtah, 
or money, depending on the translation. And this is one of the more humorous parts of the Bible, as the word hamor literally translates from Hebrew to English as the phrase, an ass, as in donkey. Now, in the book of Acts, in chapter 7, the name is rendered in the King James as emor, with an E. Not quite as funny. In the next chapter, we see where Dinah, Jacob's daughter, was raped by Seshem, who then requested her to be given to him as a wife. Then there were the people known as the men of Hamor. This was apparently a generic term for the inhabitants of Seshem. Later, in Judges chapter 9, the men of Hamor or Seshem, once again depending on the translation, proved to be a criminal lot, and Abilamech forced justice once again upon them, like fathers like grandsons. Next, in chapter 34, are the Perizzites. They were a people who were described in the Old Testament as having lived in Canaan before the Israelites returned from Egypt. Now, to be clear, they were first mentioned in chapter 13, but only in passing. It is believed, primarily, well, maybe exclusively from biblical sources, that they settled in the south of Canaan between Hor and Negev. In Genesis chapter 13, we can read where when Abraham, upon coming into Canaan, found the Perizzites dwelling near the Canaanites, which in that era was a much smaller distance than what we would associate with the word near today. According to the book of Joshua, they hailed from the hill country of Judah and Ephraim. Then, in chapter 15, we see where God gave their land, among others, to Abraham. Then, after Jacob's sons exacted their vengeance on Seshem in chapter 34, he admonished them, partially because he feared the Perizzites and the Canaanites. In Exodus chapter 3, well, actually in several chapters in Exodus, Moses promised to lead the Israelites to the land of the Perizzites, which was in the same area as the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Then, in Judges chapter 1, the tribes of Simeon and Judah fought the Perizzites to quote, And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. And they came upon Adoni Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Now, some translations say this was the end of the Perizzites, but it actually wasn't, as during King Solomon's reign, he enslaved them after many years of conflict. Actually, the quote from 1 Kings chapter 9 is very telling. There were still people left from the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These people were not Israelites. Solomon conscripted the descendants of all these peoples remaining in the land, whom the Israelites could not exterminate. End quote. Now, it must be understood that in the New Revised Standard Version, the word exterminate has a footnote that reads, The Hebrew term refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord, often by totally destroying them. Prezites were also mentioned in the book of Ezra, which chronologically was several hundred years after Genesis, but it's pretty certain that this mention does not show that the people existed at that time, but it was more of a historic reference. 
Biblical scholars used to believe that the Perizzites were a prehistoric tribe, which assimilated with the Canaanites after the people who would become the Canaanites migrated to Canaan. But the difficulty with this interpretation is that the Perizzites are not mentioned in the genealogy found in the Table of Nations. A more current theory is that the term Perizzite is related to the words Perizzi and Parazi, and also are so close in pronunciation and spelling that they could be considered identical. These researchers go on to propose that the Perizzite people was a word that simply referred to the inhabitants of unwalled towns. Therefore, they were probably poor and not nomadic. The outside record, at least that uncovered to date, has no mention of them. Next is Genesis chapter 35. In this chapter, God sends Jacob to Bethel, where he builds an altar. After he's done, God appears to him and reaffirms the promise that Jacob will be a great nation and that his name will be Israel. Jacob, well, Israel, sets up a pillar and pours a drink offering. Then Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, but she dies in the process. She is buried near Bethlehem. At the end of the chapter, Isaac dies and is buried by both Jacob and Esau. The first place mentioned in chapter 35 is Bethel, but this city is fairly well covered in the Old Testament and will take some time, perhaps too much time for this episode, so I'll cover it next week. Which brings us to the town of Luz. It is believed that the Luz of the Old Testament is actually two different places. In both Genesis chapters 28 and 35, we read that Luz is the ancient name of a royal Canaanite city, probably the early name of Bethel. To be clear, researchers are unsure if the two were two different cities, just really close to each other, or two names for the same city. In the latter theory, it is thought that Luz was the Canaanite name, and Bethel the Hebrew name. Then, in Judges chapter 1, there is another city named Luz. This was said to have been founded by a man who came from the original Luz. Just for clarity, the actual story is, The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph sent out spies to Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. When the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. So he showed them the way into the city, and they put the city to the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. So the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city, and named it Luz. And that is its name to this day. End quote. Other than that, not much is known about either Luz, well except there is speculation that the second Luz was located near the town of Dan, Israel. Other than that, nothing. And that's probably a good place to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up the history with chapter 35 in Bethel. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. Due to the way the algorithms work in iTunes, doing so helps others to find the podcast. 
You can also find the podcast Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.